Welcome to this Innovation Forum webinar. I'm Ian Welsh and I'll be your host for the next hour or so. We're producing this webinar in association with Earth Day. We're going to be talking about ESG through the supply chain and incentives that work on the ground. In order to hit targets on sustainability issues with on round issues such as emissions, waste and ethical working conditions, companies must work with their suppliers to implement change. Asking suppliers to shift behaviour and protocols can be challenging and incentives are often needed. And that's what we'll be discussing for the next hour or so, focusing in particular on Asia. Firstly, though, it's a great pleasure to invite uh, Karuna Singh, Regional Director for Asia at Earth Day Network, to make a few opening remarks. Karuna. Hello, namaste to everyone. Uh, as Ian said, I'm Karuna Singh. I'm with earthday.org, an organization that grew out of the first Earth Day 53 years ago on the 22nd of April, and today engages with over 50,000 organizations in 190 countries to take the environmental movement forward. I'm so glad to share with you that two of the panelists here also we have worked with. We have Sonam Vagchuk, who is our ambassador. We are so privileged to have him as ambassador, the man who got the Rolex prize for his ice stupas. And we have uh, Satya here from uh, Kheti, who we were so honored to feature in our book for the wonderful work they do to save water. This Earth Day, the theme is invest in our planet. It calls upon everyone whether you're individuals, corporates, businesses, governments, just about everyone, to come together in a partnership for Earth. And the program today is just that. Congratulations on it. And I'm sure the deliberations will be very fruitful in getting others also to invest in our planet. Thank you very much for having me here. Thank you very much indeed for your comments. And I wish you a very happy Earth Day. Okay, uh, we do have a fabulous uh, panel to help frame our discussions today. I'm delighted to be joined by Kate Larson, an old friend, uh, who's Director for ESG, Human Rights and Sustainability, Supply Chains Advisory at Supply ES Change. We have Safia uh, Mokapati, who's co-founder and president of Greenhouse Innovator KT and Saif Khan, Technical Director at Footprints. Uh, sadly, uh, Dr. Sunam Wang-Chuk uh, is unable to join us um, just to events beyond uh, our control. So apologies uh, from, from him. I'll turn to our panel shortly, but we do want to hear from all of you on the line. Please be thinking about points and questions that you'd like me to put to our panel and write them into the Q&A box, uh, which is in front of you. Um, you can, of course, like other participants' questions, and the more likes a question gets, the greater the chances that I will put it to our panel. Okay, welcome. Uh, welcome to the panel. Welcome, particularly Kate. And perhaps you can kick us off. You've spent significant chunks of your career working with companies in Asia. What do you see as the main emerging supply chain, environmental and social challenges in Asia right now, Kate? Hi, thank you very much. So just to clarify, I've worked with Western brands, working with Asia supply chains. Um, and then obviously in that process, I was in and out of factories and projects um, across Asia, China through to India, Sri Lanka, etc. Um, I'll just firstly say though that um, I'm honored to be on this panel with 
Saif and Safia, um, Safia winning the Moonshot Prize, which I saw on TV some months ago, which is super inspiring. And Saif, who is an associate of our team, but runs his own business and team out of Hong Kong. And so I know the depth of the amazing work he and team do on particularly social and investigating and helping end forced labor, but also touching on the environment, um, how companies are working with suppliers in Asia on environmental issues. So what do I see as some of the main channels? And obviously, um, the insights of Saif and Zafia will be even more important, but at least for me to respond to that question, um, we, we, you know, the first point would just be we're one planet together. So, so it doesn't matter, um, you know, the difference in, in Asia versus, um, the West, so to speak. Uh, we all need to work to end ecological destruction, uh, climate change being a key piece of that. But I live near the sea. And so I see you know, I'm involved in a lot of conversations and with a client um, um, clean hub on the plastic waste issue as well. And you see that a lot more on the ground in Asia. You see that impact on people's livelihoods in communities in Indonesia, for example, who we've been working with, what I did recent, recently visit. Um, and and that really that conflated with the fact that people are already often living in in more poverty, and we've been you know Asia's been making amazing progress on ending poverty in in you know my time in China um in other countries uh, we used to talk you know I studied about the Asian tigers the amazing economic development success they've been in improving livelihoods but nevertheless um you know ecological destruction impacts and and fights against that and um i would also just point out i think it's really important for people to understand two things that i'll summarize and finish with which is one that post covid unfortunately um a lot of western brands in particular chose to not pay suppliers in asia in particular who had already produced been contracted to produce particularly garments but other consumer goods and some of these were fully sewn, packed, labeled, branded, shipped, sitting in containers in ports, ready to ship to the West, and brands refused to pay them. Um, so we've seen um, one lawsuit about that against one Western brand recently, and um, a big movement to respond with the pay up fashion campaign. But the impact of that is poverty, because people who had already done the work were not paid. Um, and that also makes it harder for factories who we are asking as Western brands to work on environmental improvements to do that when they've just been through this incredibly rocky three years of survival. Um, and so I think if we talk about incentives, um, I'll move that over now to, to some of our other speakers. We can loop back with Saif shortly um, on how that is perverse in terms of incentives. We want these standards and yet we're not paying and we're not engaging and being business partners together to deliver the environmental and social improvements everybody wants to see. So I know some of you on the call um, were perhaps from more responsible companies who did pay, but I just want to bring that elephant in the room that first pay, paying fair prices, engaging, and ensuring also that the whole industry has to do that so that collectively we can solve all our problems together. Thanks, Kate. Do you think that the relationships between brands then and their suppliers, uh, are they irretrievably worsened following those sort of payment issues? Or how do they, how do they, have they changed? And are they, do you think, can you see the 
the relationship's improving on the way back. From where I sit and, and having seen movements such as Bangladeshi suppliers getting together to create organizations which um, will collectively help them deal with these challenges, it doesn't seem irretrievable, although some suppliers, you know, factories are closed and things like that. So for those individual factories, it was irretrievable and those workers lost jobs. But I'll also leave that question to Saeed as well, because he'll um, know a bit more than me as well. Okay, thanks, Kate. Lots to come back on there. Um, so if I'll come to you in a bit. I, I want to go bring in Sathya uh, just now. Sathya, we, we lost you briefly there. I'm delighted to see you've come back. Um, Sathya, why don't you tell us a little bit about your award-winning uh, greenhouse-style products and how they specifically help farmers? In particular, I wonder if you can just tell us how these products provide incentives for farmers to produce lower-impact products for their buyers. Sathya. Thank you. Um... Thanks for this opportunity, uh, team. So firstly, when you think about designing products and services, including supply chains in today's time and age, there is a lot of times so an anchor around a green premium, particularly in sustainability space, that you assume that there has to be a premium for something that is produced in a sustainable way. Increasingly, the world has seen, even with EVs and other interesting technologies, that the market still compares that with, say, uh, compares an EV with a combustion fuel engine and sees, you know, how does it work for me? So this is the reality. So starting there, I think we need to start building a solution. We actually started building a solution which has a strong value proposition where incentives are embedded in the value what this technology provides. For example, what we do at Kethi is we build uh, affordable small modular greenhouses for smallholder farmers, which sit in one-tenth of an acre, which use 2% of water compared to what farmers use in open field to grow the same amount of uh, food. And uh, with that, we get to double the farmer's income uh, by adding more specifically about $500 to $1,000 of additional money in the pockets of smallholders who barely earn that much per year. Now, there are a few interesting points that I want to double click on here. When we designed, we kept a smallholder farmer uh, in the center of the entire design process. What are the realities? What are their unmet and unarticulated needs? And some of them are really interesting. They don't come across in the headlines of newspapers or uh, sustainability journals, like in India, if you're designing for uh, producing food and trying to build a sustainable supply chain, you need to factor in, in a protected farming, a solution which ensures that farmers don't have the monkey menace, which probably is not a problem which farmers in other parts of the world talk about. So now this is a small nuance just to get us to think about the realities and talk about, okay, wait, it's not about a fancy solution out there, but how do you really build what the farmers want? And uh, one of the things that we started with was, what is an industrial size greenhouse uh, largely in the West? How does that look and how, does the, how do the economies work? And if you bring them down to a smallholder, how do those economies work? And how can you make it efficient? It should not be 1x, 2x better. It should be like 5 to 10x better compared to what the farmer is otherwise doing. So what we kept in mind is, to grow the food what they normally grow, like in particularly in vegetables, 
the vegetables which they normally grow how do we grow those vegetables in greenhouses honestly uh, when we started in india the general belief was in greenhouses we can grow only two or three or maximum 10 exotic vegetables now we don't even consume 1% of that that's not even the 1% of vegetable basket in india we need to when you really want to decarbonize the supply chains and when you want to build a sustainable solution you have to think about what is this 80% 90% of the bulk gonna uh, look like what do they eat what how do we grow that food and bearing that in mind we said okay if potatoes are grown in northern part of india and they are transported all over similarly tomatoes are grown in some parts of india and transported to other parts of india how difficult is it to actually do more localized production so when we ask this question and when we said okay what are the minimal things bear in mind we are talking about small holders who have very little disposable income to invest into assets like this so we realized that with small solutions small interventions we were able to actually make that happen today we grow more than 20 varieties of mass consumption vegetables in our protected farming uh, technologies and this easily if you just bring it to a supply chain context a uh, 70 to 80% over time right not today but over time if this solution scales we should be able to minimize the transportation of vegetables similarly when we spoke about when we started this technology the shared understanding in the industry was you have to get material you have to import the material from israel and we did that too for a few years and then learning from that we said okay what what does it take to actually produce this in india and uh, fast forward today most of what we produce or, or you know, most of our technology is made in india delivered to farmers in india the farmers grow vegetables and again an interesting point to understand the supply chain uh, incentivization that which is the theme of today's conversation initially when we started a solution farmers were really dependent on us for market linkages because those vegetables which are exotics had to go to cities and some of them exported for them to make money but today the farmers barely subscribe for market linkages because most of those so most of those vegetables actually can be uh, produced and even sold in the local market so maybe in the small towns or small you know uh, tier 2 cities in the uh, close to the villages so this kind of technology if you keep in mind uh, you know these fundamentals of business and the realities of small holder farmers or i'll say the realities of last mile user we will actually make a fundamental change in the way we design solutions and deploy solutions this takes uh, you know again we as humans we have this pathway bias once we choose a path we then go create networks around that path for that path to work i mean uh, a famous example is the 1905 1904 1905 when the world chose uh, internal combustion fuel engines uh, when we actually could have chosen electric back then when this looked more lucrative then we built a whole ecosystem around that uh, drilling industry kind of got uh, kept thriving and we know uh, so much about that but today when you are talking about decarbonizing supply chains we cannot just take an incremental approach and say okay we will do 5% 10% we need to step back and really look at what does it take for us to dramatically reimagine the way today we run our supply chains how can we not cut the emissions 5% 10% what are the significant investments we should make into our supply chain to again investment does not necessarily mean we are losing money right so how do we really play it smart 
to create products and services which add value to the last mile our consumer and also are gentle on the planet thanks very much um uh, satya could you just um unpack a little bit the, for us the the relationship you had with the farmers i'm mean, intrigued on on the change you mentioned whereby when you started working with smallholders and you were creating uh, and building for them these these um you know small scale um greenhouses uh the you know in fact they they had no access to market you had to develop for them a pathway to market but you you and then move from that to now they are um able to find their own access to market what does that journey look like for the farmer and and how how long is the process of that that transformation so we took again um one one way to do that is a behavior change which is harder the other way to do that is by making the alternative more lucrative and irresistible so what we chose is a business model approach to that where our earlier our crop portfolio did not have so many locally grown and locally consumed vegetables today when the crop portfolio has locally grown and locally consumed vegetables suddenly uh, the farmers see that value in not opting for market linkage but they actually doing those market linkages themselves so uh, it's a product innovation in one sense it's a crop protocol innovation in one sense which helped the farmers and us in reducing the amount of transportation which these vegetables would have otherwise gone through and it took us about close to 4 years uh, to get there sure it's not easy i mean some farmers absolutely dislike the fact that we started talking about phasing out the market linkage but within a year nobody spoke about it and when we actually went back to take a survey they said yeah it's a good to have but yeah we are we are doing pretty fine so which is a great sign Yeah, no, absolutely. Thanks very much for that. Again, lots we can come back on. Um, audience, looking forward to your questions. I can guarantee you right now, if you put a question in, it will get answered because we haven't got any yet. So please do put your questions using the Q and A box. As I said before, once we get some questions, you can start liking them, and so they will be ranked in terms of the number of likes. The more likes a question gets, the more it will be uh, answered, or more likely to be uh, asked and then answered. So, as I said. If you put one in right now, I guarantee it will be asked because uh, it'll be the first question. So um, I look forward to the, receiving your questions shortly. So thanks very much indeed, uh, Saif. Let me turn to you. I know you work with companies uh, on social issues and environmental issues, but I'm keen to think a bit about some of the social issues now, uh, and particularly around social incentives. What have you seen working well in factories to ensure workers are properly treated? Um, when we talked before, you, you mentioned the importance of getting the right data. So perhaps you can touch on that as well. Sure. Yeah, I think you know it's this. Uh, we have had some uh, sort of very good points raised by Kate and and Satya, and I would, I think there is a room that I I can connect these two. Like you know, Kate mentioned about some of the companies, uh, you know, during the COVID times, they decided not take some of the products that were already made in the factories in Asia, uh, for obvious reason. I think you know, if you think about it, probably their businesses were down, and then there were. the sales for- forecasts were down and everything else and then we also talked about uh you know satya touched on the point that you know uh, more near sharing practices right like you know companies uh increasingly showing uh you know more uh appetite for uh sort of sourcing from nearby countries so this too has a little uh correlation in the sense that in one hand uh we are moving towards near sharing but at the same time whether the companies have enough uh you know a close relationship with the factories that they have been working for many years right so 
Uh, for example, a buyer has been sourcing product from Vietnam or China or Bangladesh and India for last 30 years. And then all of a sudden, they, they are now talking about moving near shore and then cutting down the relationship. Now, these, if it happens abruptly, this can actually have a lot of impact on the lives of people that have been uh, living off the, you know, uh, the supply chain uh, work in, in these countries. So I think it's important to sort of draw a balance when the buyers actually are making these decisions that, uh, you know, businesses, un unfortunately, in the supply chain has been very transactional. And that has had some impacts on the, on the worker's life. Meaning that uh, you know the the suppliers and the buyers haven't been able to uh, build a long-lasting relationship in many places. Uh, you know, the it's more like a one PO to another PO that many factories have to leave on. Uh, sometimes we also see facts that a factory is unable to pay their worker if they do not receive the payment from their supplier uh, from their buyers on time. And also another thing that we, we often hear from factories that we work with, they say that some of our buyers have a, a payment timeline of 180 days uh, or not even more than that. And some of the buyers actually increase that timeline during the times of COVID when the businesses are down. Even now, uh, when the economy is down, uh, we are still seeing some of the cases where some of the buyers have increased the timeline for payment for, for some of their suppliers. That also has impact on uh, some on the factories and the workers because uh, we're talking about very small scale uh, factories that often rely on on payment from the supply uh, from their buyers uh, and use that money to pay the workers. So these are some of the interesting things that we're seeing right now in supply chain for last three years. And uh, I'm afraid I, I cannot say that things are improving uh, even post COVID. Now that we are slightly above uh, those you know, term, turmoil times, things are not really looking bright. But having said that, what incentive, like more to your question, what incentive really works? I think you know, some of the buyers have a little uh, you know, more better purchasing practices where they reward suppliers that behave, uh, you know, sort of meets the targets and you know, uh, are more socially responsible and are uh, you know, having better practices, best practices around labor management and uh, environmental health and safety. These actually uh, is a better way to do businesses that, that we have seen and heard from the factories that if they feel rewarded for good practices, uh, they try, they tend to jump on it. Uh, whereas there are another kind of purchasing practices where uh, the buyers just expect the suppliers to do the right thing. And then they don't think that uh, reward uh, is uh, necessary because if this factory is not offering uh, a better price, they would move to the other factory, right? So uh, it's extremely price sensitive uh, for some of the product lines actually. And that has a lot of impact on, on you know, how, uh, sometimes factories behave because be, by behave, I mean, I mean, you know, going for better practices. Uh, they try to understand whether there are enough incentives for them to improve beyond the minimums. Uh, now, we, un we understand that the minimum is there by law. I mean, talking about minim minimum wage, minimum, you know, environmental compliance that they need to meet. But 
we haven't seen in our world enough incentives from a large set of buyers which will push the factories beyond the minimums. So I hope that you know we can move towards a more reward-based approach where the suppliers get rewarded for doing the right things uh, and buyers just don't take it for uh, for you know uh, sure that you know it's just this is every factory is supposed to do the right things and then there's no need for uh, any any rewards. So uh, obviously the worker hardships are there in the in the supply chain right now. Uh, we are seeing quite a few increase of short-term workers, temporary workers, uh, because of the pinch that the suppliers are facing and their buyers are facing because of economic downturn. So, uh, you know, obviously the short-term workers and then contract workers are much more vulnerable to, uh, you know, exploitation uh, because there are different layers of exploitation possibilities by their direct employers, by the contracting agent or, or the you know place where they work. Also, it comes with often in many countries, it comes with the fact that these workers will not have legal rights to participate in the, uh, in the existing union of the factory, or they do not even have the right to form another union if they want to, or join another union. So uh, on, in terms of freedom of association, this is also a risk. Uh, again, some countries have changed their laws recently in, in places like in Indonesia. Uh, they have made it more possible for, for factories to hire indirect uh, workers, higher percentage of indirect workers. In India, for example, it's already a big thing that uh, in the law allows for, for factories to uh, have contract workers. And we often see that these, these are actually playing negatively in the supply chain uh, when it comes to worker well-being. Workers not getting full month's wages because the employers just fluctuates the manpower need day to day, week to week. So we really are uh, hearing a lot of workers getting to us during interviews, during phone conversations that they are actually feeling the financial pinch uh, where the expectation is, a, is for a monthly minimum wage, but uh, the their principal employers are just ensuring that they are getting paid the minimum for the day, and they're not getting enough days of work in the month. So, yeah, I think these are the, some, of the, some, of the, some of the points that I wanted to touch on. And, yeah, I, I guess a lot of it would need detailed discussion uh, to really elaborate and, and uh, correlate uh, with the, some of the other points. But, yeah, let's, let's continue with hearing from the others, and then I'm happy to share my uh, con uh, thoughts and con context on uh, any of these issues. Thank you. Thanks very much. Uh, I'm interested in hearing a little bit more about uh, your, your comments around the uh, reward-based approach for relationships between um, suppliers and buyers. Um, and also the fact that um, you indicate that there's sometimes a bit of uh, over-assumption that um, everything is being done correctly. Uh, in terms of reward-based approaches, then, what, what, for example, can you give us something where that works well? What does that look like on the ground? Yeah, I mean, probably we can think of two suppliers. For example, there is minimum wage, right? And then there is uh, environmental factors. For example, a factory in China, in Guangdong province, uh, would be required to install a air, uh, air treatment plant. A same factory in Vietnam, uh, who is producing the same product, may not have that requirement by law. 
Now, the buyers in both places, if it's the same buyer, they would expect the factories to follow the minimum in both places, right? So they would expect the, the China factory in Guangdong province to install the air treatment plant, but there will be no expectation from the same kind of product manufacturer in Vietnam. So in, in that example, uh, actually the, the supply in Vietnam can actually have a higher profit margin uh, compared to a, a factory in China that I gave example of. Uh, on the other, on the flip side, if you think of uh, the wage payment timeline in China, it is possible that a, a supplier is uh, paying the January wages towards the end of February by law it is signed. Uh, whereas in Vietnam, a supplier uh, would be required to pay the settle the wages of January within the first seven days of February. So there is a little more wiggle room for for the supplier in in China. So. If the buyer is not taking into consideration all these nuances in different countries and expecting both uh, factories in two different places to act similarly and just follow the minimum, uh, that is sometimes, you know, uh, sort of sends the wrong message uh, to the supplier because obviously these suppliers are interconnected. They know what is happening in other country and they know how the other countries in a similar factory is managing things. And if they are offered the same kind of uh, price by their buyer, they sometimes feel hard done by. And also the fact that uh, buyers do not necessarily pay, uh, pay higher or uh, give more orders to a factory who is doing better. It is not built into many buyers' uh, you know, ethical sourcing practices. They just follow the price and then go by that instead of looking into the other social environmental factors that can also be taken into consideration when uh, placing orders. To your other point, I think you know it's also worth uh, noting that sometimes, obviously, some of the factories face a little uh, pressure from from their buyers to show continuous improvement, maybe cut down on uh, energy consumption or cut down on uh, you know greenhouse emission. Uh, so, but then it, in in effect. Uh, oftentimes there is no direct correlation between these improvements and the price or quantity of order that they receive from the buyers. So in a sense, this is not an incentive that has worked well for the buyers that doesn't take into consideration. But then there are buyers as well. So I think more to a question, if you ask uh, what really works, I, I, I would say that, you know, buyers, which who has that purchasing practice of rewarding suppliers that does the right thing beyond minimum, uh, gets higher product quantity or more assurance of work throughout the year or better price. They really uh, feel motivated to do the right things and you know and improve the situation beyond the minimums. Okay, that's great. Thanks very much indeed. And we have a question. Thank you very much indeed. We will come to that in a sec. Um, I just want to bring Kate back in. Um, Kate, perhaps you could just reflect what you've heard from the other panelists. Um, and you know, are there any other issues you think we should raise at this stage on uh, developing incentives that, that can work well? Kate? Yeah, thank you. So the flip side of what Saif is saying, you know, it's brilliant what he's described, which is the on the ground, how it feels for suppliers, be they in Asia or anywhere. Um, be they in Leicester or wherever. But if we're 
having standards that are asking for environmental and social improvements to reduce emissions and ensure decent labor stand, decent work and decent labor standards, etc. The flip side, if we took that Vietnam-China example, would be to have a balanced scorecard on the buyer side. So we're placing an order for sweaters. There are three or four or five or six factories who could make those sweaters. And at the moment, many, many companies still merely assess and choose which supplier will get that order or that business with price, as Saeed was saying, um, quality, maybe shipping time or innovation, and then not factoring in um, environmental and social performance. And I've worked with companies who did factor that in as 25%, and maybe it should be more. Um, because if you say as a company that you are aiming to you know, um, have a more environmentally um, friendly supply chain, then this is what you need to be doing. Your money talks, as Saif was saying. Um, and you know, we need to, and, and also your money talks in that you will not only uh, give the reward that inspires that um, improvement, but the next level of that would it would be also incentivize the innovation which Satya was talking about, which is what we need. We don't have time. It's Earth Day. You know, we are facing climate crisis and we need to shift away from just placing orders left, right and center with whoever was cheapest to placing orders with who is meeting standards and then who is innovating above that. Um, and so on the who is meeting standards, I think you were alluding to this a little bit, Ian. Um, Saif uh, was puzzled, is usually often very humble. I'd just like people to know. Um, you know, I've seen the work of his and Verite and Impact and others over the years, and I absolutely rate his work up there with theirs, that he really knows what's going on. Um, he and his team with factories across Asia, being a Bangladeshi himself who lives in Hong Kong. And um, so he was alluding and being a bit sensitive about the fact that what I've seen on the ground, and and he's seen a lot of as well, is falsification. And the reason he was being humble about and, and careful about that is, that I think he and I both believe that you can't blame suppliers for having fake records or giving fake data. As Saif was trying to say, um, we're not creating the right incentives. We're not doing the right work necessarily on our side of digging in. And so my approach um, in China in particular used to be really get into a supplier and I speak Chinese, walk around, understand their operations, compliment them for the amazing product they're making, um, for the operation they run. And then, you know, you start to learn just by walking around a facility, get a feel for what the likely possible level of compliance might be, and just have a really open conversation about the fact that, you know what, I know that most of you in your industry are facing issues around, it's really hard to not exceed working hours targets. That also means that you probably can't pay everybody all the real overtime all the time, but we do need to close that gap. Um, and, you know, you discover sometimes suppliers who are not paying the actual legal minimum, base legal minimum wage to all workers as well. And then obviously Saif's dealing with foreign contract workers in Malaysia, where it is the norm that most foreign contract workers are in bonded labor, forced labor, modern slavery. And so you've just got to be real, really realistic in this work and an open and understanding of the problems and therefore the engagement needed around and that incentives and innovation that 
that listening that Sathya talked about, about monkeys being the issue in this, and for those farmers, what are the issues in China? Social insurance used to be an absolutely massive issue in China. In Malaysia, there are certain particular issues for, for factories with foreign contract workers. And so if there's a much more open conversation about, you know what, the reality is these issues are real, um, as Saif was alluding to, that Vietnam environmental emission standards might be lower at some time. Um, you've really got to know that. And, and that's an argument for sourcing from less countries, perhaps, as a company. I've done that as a company where we decided, you know, we would love to support the people of Pakistan with orders, but we just cannot handle our scope being so wide and trying to cover so many countries um, and really understand what, what are the, the important issues towards then getting the right, getting the trust, the openness, the transparency we always talk about from suppliers so we know the truth. And once we know the truth of their situation, we're able to hear from them as Safiya and Saif were alluding or describing some of the actual um, situations they're dealing with, the root cause behind the, what we call problems. Um, and as Saif is saying, problems for workers um, and therefore start to move into solutions that match those problems. And when it comes to solutions that can be um, quite expensive to do lots of trainings and things, so I'm always promoting, you know, my experience and and is and say I think as well is that collaboration um, is the way to then uh, share costs across many buyers and other players in the industry. So ILO Better Work Program, Sustainable Apparel Coalition, you know, Fair Food Program. There's multiple different initiatives out there. Um, the Hong Kong, I'll just call this one out for Earth Day, Hong Kong Productivity Council's Cleaner Production Program that we we didn't have to pay for. We were able to introduce to suppliers in South China to learn how to understand their air and water emissions and how they could reduce those and then put in place a plan. And we were trying to recognize their effort in our buying practices as well. So so that's some of the incentives that I see that where it's not just the incentive, it's are you going to help? Are you going to reward? And are you going to listen to the truth? And are you going to help um, your suppliers get access to these ways to actually do the things we're all, all fortunately excited, as you can hear from me, to actually cause, which is those improvements. Thanks, Kate. As ever, your enthusiasm is infectious. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, thanks also to our, our questions. A few questions beginning to come in. Um, let's turn to the first one now. A really interesting question around uh, knowledge gaps. Um, I'm going to extend this um, a little bit beyond just simply suppliers and to bring in farmers with Sathya. So a uh, question asking about where um, are the knowledge gaps uh, when you're discussing about moving to more sustainable uh, processes and approaches? So, so Sathya, what are the knowledge gaps that you had to overcome when you were engaging with the farmers who were, uh, who were, who were um, taking advantage of your product, your greenhouses? I think this is, uh, I never studied agriculture in my school. So, uh, you know, it started with we understanding the first principles of what farming mean. Uh, and then what climate smart farming does and uh, overwhelmingly climate smart farming involved a lot of plastic and uh, you know even the practices inside the farm require you know, even today requires uh, uh, you know forms of plastic so we had to first understand what this technology uh, does and really bring it down to bare bones for us to understand what are the must-haves and what are the good-haves and uh, then from a farmer's lens, so where do those trade-offs lie in terms of uh, what suits the farmers? The second piece in terms of getting this to farmers, I think we really had to learn the way to 
it's not just selling a technology making sure that the technology works is uh, as important so for that we had to learn again that's where i think we learned a lot about the behavior change and uh, you know uh, the right framework to get the farmers to do the right things so uh, what what kind what are the few levers we need to uh, tap into so that the farmers actually get to do the right practices you know using less water using less uh, pesticides using uh, you know uh, timely when you actually address these problems on a timely basis then the need for any synthetic pesticides will drop dramatically so how do we how do we first learn that and then how do we package them in a way that is easy for farmers to consume while you didn't ask that actually i want to add one more point here in this process we whenever we question uh, okay so we are using this practice how uh, sensible is it uh, one of the more recent conversations that i had was with a supplier of something called a mulching sheet it is a small uh, thin sheet of plastic used at the uh, I, you know i would say the on the on the on the soil at the root bed where uh, it prevents weeds from growing and those those plastics often even today most of the plastics used in most parts of the world are not biodegradable and uh, we had to first learn about what that process is for making those sheets and learn what are the alternative materials available in conversation with the suppliers and long story short we could persuade one of the suppliers to actually uh, come up with a biodegradable mulching sheet maybe in about less than a year uh, i think we will have that uh, you know we'll have success in getting that product out you know so that's it, it, you know we learn and also kind of we, we collaborate and make sure that uh, you know that knowledge gets passed on to the suppliers for them to uh, make their products smarter and more climate resilient and it just took one piece of communication even with uh, uh, the suppliers that we worked with in the past to get them to do this i said look if you really want to be in business in long term the world is caring more and more about this and if you want to be in business for just next 5 years don't care about any of this but if you really want to be in business for long term you have to start paying attention to this otherwise you i mean it's almost like a tip i mean sensitizing them that there is a tipping point even for businesses that you know if you don't start acting you will be left behind and they get it because more than making money the fear of losing money is what is going to get businesses to act so that's a human uh, behavior that we have more loss aversion Great point. So thanks very much indeed. Saif, do you want to jump in there? What are the knowledge gaps that you see? What are the kind of the, the challenges around knowledge gaps that need to be addressed to really drive the change? Yeah, uh, probably let me just uh, you know uh, talk about from the supplier uh, you know perspective. So uh, yeah, I think you know obviously if we're talking about a law in in Germany, uh, how how it impacts a uh, factory in vietnam or or bangladesh there is definitely a gap in in such knowledge but then uh if we are talking about paying their workers properly paying the right kind of overtime rate i i tend to think that there is no knowledge gap in those areas uh but then 
so it, it really depends on issue to issue, right? Uh, environmental factors. Yes, I do see that uh, many, many suppliers lack knowledge on, on you know, uh, better environmental practices uh, and how to bridge this gap. Uh, there are actually quite a few trainings, uh, you know, sort of out there. Uh, access to trainings are there for, for suppliers uh, and that they can access to and then uh, improve their team. But it all comes down to, Ian, I think, you know, as, as I sort of touched upon in the beginning, that the relationship dynamics between the buyers and, and uh, suppliers is so fragile that it almost disincentivizes uh, suppliers to even invest in in knowledge sometimes. Uh, I like the point that Satya mentioned that if you, if you are in the business for short term, don't care about this. Often enough, unfortunately, this is the kind of mindset that we see among, among suppliers. They think that, yeah, this is just, we are doing something because our buyers have asked for it. Uh, so it's more like a trading mentality than an entrepreneurial mentality. So uh, I think because of the uh, the way things are done so far in supply chain, short short orders, one-time order, and then no more assurance after that, that has a little disincentive uh, for, for suppliers to invest in, in knowledges. But in terms of access to knowledge, I think there are always uh, works, um, you know, wonderful training materials, training options are out there from uh, development organizations and uh, you know some of the organizations that Kate has mentioned. Even we do offer training for suppliers on, on play things like you know, how to control your work hour, how to connect the dots between uh, productivity and working hours and how to things like you know, install a better grievance handling mechanism in your factory. So we do offer these trainings, but then if we were to offer it to factories directly thinking them as our potential customer, I think there is very less chance that we will get a customer. Often enough, most of our customers are uh, our factories, but they are a customer because they are, we are being pushed by the, uh, the buyer to access our training, meaning the buyer would tell the supplier, please go for this training. And then the buyer think uh, the supplier thinks that this is something they need, need to do to make the buyer happy, and then they do it. But as I said, if we were just going directly to the factories, we would not have a lot of success in terms of securing a client. Thanks very much indeed, Kate. I wonder if you want to perhaps comment on the point that I was just raised just now about you know um, suppliers often have to operate on a kind of short term basis because that that's what they're buyers have asked for isn't the point here that we need to incentivize buyers to be asking for better behavior rather than simply cut the price and deliver this quicker yeah yeah absolutely and firstly i just say i work with many industries so i've also had in recent years clients who are pharmaceuticals or food or all sorts of other things and you also see the opposite which is that Oh, but we've worked with the supplier so long, they must be fine. We can't touch them. We, we, sh we shouldn't look at them. You know, oh, we trust them. We know them. And, but nobody's ever actually assessed what the labor conditions are or the environmental conditions are. We just will take their declaration on paper and we'll believe it. And therefore, we don't have a fair comparison going on. So 
Yes, there's somewhere in the middle, which more mature companies are already doing and have done for a long time, which is that, yes, we have a close and positive and long-term relationship with as many suppliers as possible, and we also monitor them closely. And that, and because that can be expensive, the more suppliers you have, we do that through industry initiatives mapped to certain hotspots, countries, types of um, sectors, etc. So, yes, we need to move away from uh, leaving suppliers at the mercy of short-term orders, um, and in particular of not being paid in times of crisis. That's the absolute number one rule of purchasing practices. There's a lot more that companies can learn about how to have responsible purchasing practices from their wear organization, the Ethical Trading Initiative, and, and others. Um, and most companies could do with doing quite a bit of that work for their internal teams. And then the even bigger problem there is that that's fantastic for your sourcing supply chain, purchasing teams do a lot of that training. But if their incentives from the CFO and the CEO don't align, so I'm a sourcing director or vice president and my incentive is still primarily around margins um, and doesn't really factor in environment, both environmental and social performance, but also the integrity of the data, which SAFE was alluding to. So are we doing a program that does introduce enough other solutions and is realistic about the fact that we can't just rely on the result, the, <laughs> but we actually need to recognize result and effort and then rate on environmental and social. So if we're doing that, then yes, the whole company right up to the CEO should be incentivized to work with the suppliers who are performing in the way that we as a company say we want our supply chain to be, which is more ecologically and socially responsible. And so we have a still have quite a disconnect that there are even in in quite responsible companies we're still not really seeing it at the ceo level and saying that to investors saying to investors look margins are not the only thing you want us to do environmental results and reduce our carbon footprint um on the one hand and yet you you're asking just for margins on the other you know unilever's sort of and patagonia and a few others have shown that you can be a successful business by talking back to investors and saying you know what where we, we want a triple bottom line our planet deserves it um, and the people who make um, and move and grow our things deserve it so there's that factor and then I also just want to leap to a, a further factor which is that as we map um, what our footprint is and be ourselves a supplier or a buyer um, you know I was involved in a carbon footprinting exercise last year and I was really glad to see that when the carbon footprinting result hit um, a, a chief operating officer of a company, um, the person looked at that and went, you know what, why don't we, and this is kind of what Satya was touching on, Why? and, and Satya, I think you were saying that you realized this with farmers, that you were sourcing some material they needed from abroad, and why don't we just produce it here in India? So this COO of a company was saying, oh, why are we bringing in packaging from Asia to Europe and then packaging it? Why don't we just buy from a packaging supplier in Europe? Now, the reverse can apply as well. You know, I've worked with companies where you're bringing in materials from Europe to Asia, and that feeds into the working hours problems that we're all waiting for these shipments to come. And that's only going to get worse with climate change, with weather patterns and, and the 
issues we've already seen around shipping in recent years. So we need some intelligent thinking and innovative approaches going into how we're looking at um, environmental problems. And as I'm alluding, a lot of them actually affect the social um, results that we can be responsible for as well, which is that if we help um, parts of our organizations to localize more and to and we invest um, as a company or, or as a supplier in, in local sources of raw materials and actually creating locally, then um, we can take away some of what impacts both the environmental footprint, but also is creating social problems of you know factories sitting there waiting for a raw material to come in and everybody having to do overtime next week because last week we didn't have the raw material, which I've seen so many times. <laughs> so um, I'll, I'll stop there, but um, okay, thanks. You know, we need that bigger thinking. No, thank you, Kate. Great, great points. Um, I've got a question for you, uh, Saif. Um, and the question is talking about rewards after the fact. Are rewards after the fact sufficient for improving practices of factories, or is there a need for upfront investment? And, and when do, do you know what's the kind of dynamic between the two? Right. Yeah. This, this is an interesting question, actually. Yeah, I think it also sort of sort of depends on the size of businesses that we're talking about, uh, and then uh, you know. Are we taking the business uh, from its inception or are we talking about uh, at the current moment? Uh, so many of the established buyers actually would be working mostly with very established factories that have been in business for quite a few years. So it is rare to see a, a buyer going into a, a greenfield factory. So, uh, but then there are smaller factories and bigger factories, right? So. Uh, a, a, for a, a 200 worker factory uh, in, a, in an apparel or footwear supply chain is considerably very, very small, uh, uh, almost like a 1,000 or 1,200 worker factory would be on, on average. Uh, so these are, you know, uh, just to put it on context that, you know, if we compare it with uh, a company, a 200 employee company uh, on, on the service sector would be a big company, but then a 200 worker factory and a manufacturing business would be a smaller smaller company. So uh, access to funds is a problem for many of these uh, smaller companies. I mean, I can give example for, for Bangladesh, for example, where the uh, interest rate tends to be very, very high for, you know, uh, for businesses. So something around 18 to 19%. So that's way higher than many, many other places. So sometimes Factories have a lot of difficulty uh, to innovate or, you know, sort of establish better, uh, you know, sort of uh, install better environmental, uh, you know, installations, things like, you know, water treatment plant uh, is the major, sometimes that we see that it's a major, major cost for some of these factories. Uh, I came across one example where a buyer actually uh, partially uh, funded the installation of a water treatment plant at a factory in Bangladesh. So that was, that's a good, good, very good example, actually. It's not commonly seen. And uh, kudos to the buyer because they identified that this is a critical supplier and they want to hold their hand and move it, move them to a higher level. But then there are other organizations, things like, you know, for example, uh, uh, Things like IFC also comes up with, with funds. And then there are development organizations like 
uh, GIZ. Uh, they also have access to funds for some of the uh, companies if they want to uh, install things like water treatment plant. And then uh, obviously the interest rate is a factor. Uh, again, one of the things that really uh, helps buyer or you know the suppliers to decide on this uh, investment is that they, they want to see a little assurance uh, in, in uh, businesses. For example, in Bangladesh in last uh, two, three years, some, some I mean, huge uh, wave of green factories going on. So I, I think right now, Bangladesh sits with the 40 lead certified factories. Uh, so that's a welcoming change uh, after, you know, we are also sitting on the month of uh, when the Rana Plaza incident happened uh, many years back. So, uh, you know, factories have been improving and they have been improving on, on safety side. But then if we're talking about, you know, uh, as a whole, Bangladesh still has a lot of catching up to do in terms of working hour, uh, providing better safety conditions for all of its workers in terms of fire and building safety. Uh, yeah. So can I ask you just to draw your remarks? Because we're coming towards uh, the end of our time, I'm afraid. Um, fascinating okay. that it was. I'm sorry to cut you off. I do want to ask a final question to everybody. Um, Safia, you appear to have lost your light. I hope you're OK. I can still hear us. Um, I'd like to ask our panel, just in closing, to come up with the one single most important thing in finding the right incentives at work. Oh, I think we've lost Sathya, unfortunately. Um, all right, Kate, if you would, very briefly, the one single one thing you want our listeners to take away in terms of how to find the right incentives. Kate. Hi, just unmuted. Um, I think this is where human rights due diligence is a really powerful tool. So my single most important way to get your incentives right is to understand what's happening on the ground. And the link to human rights due diligence is that you're mapping your risk and you're trying to really understand what's going on in those countries that we're sourcing from or that we're operating in and what are the realities. So I touched on you know, social insurance in China or foreign contract workers in Malaysia or whatever is the, the, the biggest issues um, in those countries really get to know it rather than just sitting at a desk and placing orders. Thanks. That's great. Thanks very much indeed, Kate. Safe for you. Single one most important thing. And very briefly, as we're now out of time. Sure. Yeah, I think I'll, I'll carry on with my theme so far today. So I, I would really love that buyers establish a more uh, you know, long-term relationship with the fa uh, factories that they work with. That goes a long way in, you know, making improvements and in individual factories. Uh, the moment that the buyer, the factories know that this buyer is going to stay with us as, as some more, uh, they, that gives them more incentive to establish better uh, social and ecological practices. Great. Thanks very much indeed. I, I'm going to have to draw, the draw things to a close here. We are out of time. Many thanks indeed to our panellists, to Safe, to Kate and to Satya. Mm -hmm. I mean, unfortunately, we have lost, lost, but thank you very much indeed for all your comments Reminded and your in power insight. Power in China factories. <laughs> exactly, absolutely. Yeah, uh, listeners, many of the issues that we've covered will be on the agenda yeah. at Innovation Forum's Future of Climate Action online conference from the 12th to the 14th of June. Mm -hmm. If you want to hear more uh, then, you can sign up for the conference before the end of next week and save £100 on three of the event passes. And I hope to see you there. Do head for Innovation Forum's website for more webinars, podcasts and insights, along with everything that we're doing this year. I hope you found this webinar useful. But for now, I'm Ian Welsh. Thank you for joining us and goodbye. <laughs>